You are listening to episode 61 of Positively. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To contact me, find more information about my ebooks and podcasts, please go to pasachipotle.com and you can also find the link on this episode's notes. The traditional best bits of pasta chipotle has been a thing since 2017, and throughout these years I've handpicked 24 guests who have shared their experiences, work, books, opinions, and in some cases, the story behind their businesses, which reflects their personal connection to Mexico's gastronomy and culture. I have also produced dozens of episodes in which I have taken a closer look to specific foods, traditions, dishes, ingredients, regions, celebrations, and historical events that have shaped the way we eat and how food, cooking, and even the way we talk about food are all fundamental parts of what defines Mexico's cultural identity. Paz de Chipotle is much more than just a podcast. It is the audible companion to my ever-growing ebook series that explores the traditions and culinary heritage of Mexico. And together with these two projects, I share with you the wondrous and fascinating stories, foods, and history behind one of the world's most acclaimed cuisines. On these episode's notes, you will find links to connect with my guests that I had over this past season 4, and you will also find a link to subscribe to my newsletter. And if you're in for some tantalizing food photography, well, then you better go click the link to follow me on Instagram. As many of you have heard already on my newsletter, I have recently started a postgrad in food anthropology, for which I am very excited, as I hope it will help me continue improving my work and coming up with new foodie projects that I will share with you. So after this special, I will take a little hiatus to work on the planning for season 5, and I already have a long list of topics, guests, and stories that I will bring to you soon. Well, having said that, thank you for another year together. I hope you enjoy this episode. Without breaking tradition, you will hear today a selection of my conversations with the guests that have graced the microphones of the show. And believe me when I say that I carefully handpick each and every one of the guests, because as a gastronomic educator, it is my responsibility and honor to showcase the uniqueness and relevance of the people who celebrate Mexican food around the world. We started season four 
with a tantalizing approach to understanding the boundaries and flexibility of our own notions about food tradition and how the disruptive idea of reinterpreting mostly savory Mexican dishes as desserts has proved to be a successful entry point to challenge people's perceptions about traditional Mexican foods. Artist, baker and business owner Karina Jimenez shared her journey as the founder of Viva Los Cupcakes. But sometimes we can also reach out to tradition to reflame our place in the world and reconnect with our roots, like young Eddie Sandoval, who found in his Mexican heritage and the strong connection with the Tarahumara culture that his family has, the inspiration to build his business, championing pinole, an ancestral corn-based power drink that has fueled the dreams of hundreds of generations of one of the most resilient tribes of Mexico. Mexican food can not only be appreciated through food itself, because it also needs the help of people who have dedicated their lives to study it by talking to cooks, understanding the ingredients and the very landscape itself that has inspired and nurtured our agriculture. And that's what I talked about, among other things, with Elizabeth Carroll, who directed and produced Nothing Fancy, the acclaimed documentary on the life's work of Diana Kennedy, who found in documenting and safekeeping Mexico's culinary traditions a way to create meaning for her own life. But life's challenges never end, and mighty and strong as tradition might seem, it is as resilient as our own will to preserve it. Which is why I sat down with Rafael Mier, who has spearheaded a true food revolution to protect Mexico's most emblematic and important crop, that is corn, with the promotion of changes in federal laws to ensure the survival and protection of our native varieties of corn. The importance of native Mexican ingredients has not only been fundamental for our own cuisine, many such ingredients have also revolutionized tastes, shaped stories of their own, and crafted habits and even inspired modern-day industries. Those are some of the many aspects I talked about with chocolate historian Alex Hutchinson, who opened up a window into exploring how cacao changed Britain's food history forever and how its strong legacy is still heavily rooted into their own gastronomic identity. So I say we start with some sound bites. We are often pushed by the media industry international laws and even our social circles to embrace a specific identity, to act as such, to dress, eat and even behave accordingly. But who said that is only one way to express ourselves? And if we decide to embrace mm, a more fluid approach, which are the consequences of that? Especially for the millions of people of mixed heritage who have their lives enriched by multiple cultures. Here's what Karina Jimenez shared about her experience with this. I grew up in the border, so it's it's a border town. Everything gets fused together. It gets mixed. It gets interchanged. 
I grew up in Mexico in a restaurant. I think I was born a foodie. I always joke about this, but when I was in fourth grade, it never made sense to me how kids just had potato chips and soda during lunch. I always had to have a torta, a sandwich, extra tomato and extra lettuce. And that's always been a joke. Like I had to eat, like I need to eat something. Again, the connection that we have with the border town and that is such a fusion of things. You know, we also in Mexico still celebrate Halloween. We still celebrate Thanksgiving because the two cultures just intertwine. It's always an exchange. My dad worked in the U.S. when he was young in the 70s, been back and forth. That's a lot of the history of people, like border town culture. So when we moved here permanently, even though we're very close, <laughs> you know, we can be in Mexico in two hours, but still another world. When you're far away from your own country, as I'm sure you know, you, you need that reconnection. You long for that reconnection to your roots to connect to what you know, what you wish you had, what is so far away from you. And that became more and more apparent as I, you know, start meeting other people who are second generation, third generation Mexican-American who have not had access to a deeper connection because they no longer have family in Mexico. They don't have a connection. They don't speak the language, but they look for something. And so a lot of it has been this pop culture things like Frida Kahlo is such a pop culture phenomenon, Loteria game, the Mexican bingo style game. And then, of course, we go to food. Food is so connected with us. We have a palate memory. We have particular foods that connect us to childhood memories. And it, it's deeply embedded in our culture. Food scholars often dread the proverbial loss of traditions, often forgetting that what is today's tradition was once an innovation. But I guess we can all agree on the deep and powerful importance of having a sense of belonging and pride. However, there is always the challenge to communicate that to others. And in the case of heritage foods, how do you communicate the meanings and symbols of ancestral cultures in a way that resonates with the values of a modern and fast Western lifestyle? This is what Eddie Sandoval, founder of Pinole Blue, shared about that. I actually graduated with a finance degree. I was in college at the time. I was actually wanting to go into the corporate field. I thought I was going to be a financial analyst or I thought I'd work in Wall Street someday. At the same time, I was always very entrepreneurial growing up. And I always loved telling people about my family traditions because I grew up in grew up being one of the only Hispanics in my small town. My family's from a rural area in Chihuahua. And I was always bring, telling people, oh, yeah, we drink pinole, there's taromanas. My family in Mexico makes their own cheese, stuff like that. I kind of had this idea when it was my senior year, it was my last year of college, I was struggling to find a job and, you know, it kind of hits you on what do you want to do with the rest of your life. And there's a book called Born to Run, where an author went down to Chihuahua to study the Tarahumaras and why they were so good at running and how they were drinking pinole. And when this book came out in the US, it exploded like People were trying to run barefoot like the Tarumanas, but you still couldn't find Pinole here. So that's where I saw the problem also with the running community. And as I mentioned, my family, when I moved here to Wichita, where I came to school, Wichita, Kansas, we couldn't find Pinole here either. And there's a very big Hispanic population here. And I saw this as a problem too. I was like, uh, people in the city cannot find Pinole and the runners can't find Pinole. I want to make sure to make it available. So that's where I learned a lot about corn and I found out about the organic blue corn provider. The way it all started, Rocio, is I drove down to the Chihuahua border. 
a little border town called Ojinaga, Chihuahua, because my family were not too far from there. And I met my cousin and my cousin drove all the way to the mountains of Chihuahua and brought the organic blue corn from the farmer. He brought back a thousand pounds, uh, 500 kilos of blue corn in bags, met me at the, at the border. And I came back to my house and I started in the garage of my house. And we were just roasting and grinding the corn with a little molino, a little grinder. We were putting the pinola in the brown bags and I was just stamping a label. And I went to all the small Hispanic shops um, where the Hispanic shopped. And then I even started posting it on Facebook. I posted on Craigslist, just telling people, hey, we're selling pinola from Mexico. And the Hispanic population looked at me like I was crazy. Like, why is this 22-year-old kid selling pinola out of the trunk of his car? But it exploded. Um, in three months, I sold over 300 pounds of pinole. And at that time, there was a competition at the university I was going to, Wichita State University, for entrepreneurships, for startups. I pitched the crazy idea of starting an organic pinole business. And I remembered growing up, every time we went to Chihuahua, I saw the economic resources that the Tarumaras, this indigenous tribe in Chihuahua, was struggling with. And I said, I want to sell pinole, but I want to give a part of my sales back to the Tarumaras because they lack resources from the government they live in this rural area and people just don't really even pay attention to them a country's gastronomy is but a reflection of its own food systems and in the case of mexico we are incredibly fortunate to have many fertile areas where many farming staples have sustained our food traditions corn being at the center of our culinary universe of course but strange as it might seem heritage varieties of corn are facing some of the most worrying challenges of history, namely due to the displacement of native cultivars for lab-engineered varieties. And this is how Rafael Mier, founder of the non-profit Tortilla de Maíz Mexicana, helped us understand this. Bueno, pues primero hablar de que el maíz es el alimento de mayor importancia para la dieta de los mexicanos. Creo que por ahí es importante que empecemos. Corn is still the main crop and ingredient of Mexicans' diet. The annual per capita consumption of corn is about 90 kilos. But in previous decades, it was about 130 kilos per capita. So one of the main reasons for the change in our diet is due to internal migration in the country from rural areas to urban centers. And not only that meant that these diasporas stopped eating their traditional foods and corn, it also meant that corn stopped being planted in their communities of origin or planted with less frequency. Hoy en día la tortilla a la cual tenemos acceso muchos mexicanos no es la misma tortilla con la misma calidad. Another problem has been the rise of low quality mass produced tortilla, which Fundación Tortilla and Rafael call junk tortilla, that has altered the traditional nixtamalization process to make hominy, which only requires three ingredients: water, corn, and either lime, the mineral, or ash. Nixtamalization, Rafael reminds us, is an ancient method to transform dried corn kernels into masa. They are soaked with lime or ash, then boiled and ground. This process creates several things. It alters the chemistry and structure of corn, releasing the nutrients and amino acids, creating protein chains. Also releases the natural pectin, that is like a gelatin, and stabilizes the starches in the masa, making it pliable 
supple, soft, and elastic. Hence, when you rolled, bend, or fold a traditional, freshly made corn tortilla, it won't break. Rafael was quick to point out that nowadays, industrially produced tortillas that are sold cold and wrapped in plastic bags can sit for weeks at a time on the shelves, and they contain many chemical additives to slow down the natural process of decomposition. And thanks to the research that his team has performed, they have found the use of edible softeners, colorings, and many other ingredients that are not always listed on the labels. A country's food landscape is perpetually changing, and this is due to numerous reasons. Habits change, technology impacts the way we produce food, the transmission of food knowledge has also changed due to migration, economic activities, and many other social and even political aspects. During this fourth season, I finished the long series on the culinary regions of Mexico, in which I explore the coastlines, valleys, mountains, and deserts of Mexico, and the ancestral traditions that shaped their food practices and particular identities. All of these episodes are available on the very platform you are using right now to enjoy the show. But documenting these changes and understanding the historical and cultural context of a nation's gastronomic expressions is precisely the key to preserve them. Diana Kennedy is arguably one of the most recognized names in contemporary food studies. As an immigrant herself, she benefited from a fresh perspective and made a conscious effort to never oversee what is obvious to our eyes. Documenting the life of such a well-known figure was no small challenge. Elizabeth Carroll shared some of the main challenges she faced during this complex process. Yeah, I mean, I think I felt some insecurity about that, definitely. You know, what role do I have telling a story about Mexico? I'm not Mexican, and Diane is not Mexican either. I was nervous about how that would be received by Mexican people. I wanted to find out and to discover how Mexican people really felt about Diana, at least a majority of them. I know a lot of culinary experts and cooks and chefs in Mexico really like Diana and appreciate what she's done for Mexican culture in terms of solidifying it in history and creating a vault within which all of this information can be stored and protected. But then again, she compiled all this information, like you said, with the eyes of an outsider, saw it more anthropologically and scientifically, and then was basically brought, you know, you can use the word authentic Mexican cuisine to the English speaking world. But it's delicate because there can be Mexican people who are like, okay, I'm sorry, we don't need you. You know, we can do this ourselves. This is our food. You know, we don't need you to ring the bell for the rest of the world. But then again, that's really not my arena. It's not my jurisdiction. I don't don't know what it's like to grow up in Mexican culture and grow up with this food in your family and having Mexican bloodlines. So I think I definitely was fascinated with the way that Diana became assimilated to Mexican culture over time and committed herself to this work because she loves Mexico and she loves Mexican people. And she's honestly, those are kind of the only people in the world that she's still consistently nice to. <laughs> But I just tried to be kind of gentle and not insert any of my own biases or my own opinions into the film and just try to demonstrate Diana in her glory and in her daily life and just see sort of what that felt like and what that looked like. 
This documentary, Diana Kennedy, Nothing Fancy, has become an obligated reference to understanding the delicate balance between study, observation, admiration, which counterbalances the very prickly subjects of appropriation, bastardization of foods, and commodification of cultures. I really consider that this documentary is an invaluable and very meta-exercise of the outsider observing the outsider and us Mexicans seeing us through their eyes. Well, to sort of counterbalance this approach, I produced a subsequent episode, which is number 58, in which I explored the evolution of food studies in Mexico. Because just as Diana made huge contributions, she also stood on the shoulders of giants and was one of many in a long lineage of specialists who have dedicated their work to studying Mexico's gastronomy. I also recommend you watch the YouTube version of my episode on Diana, which has many visual references that illustrate it. Along this year, I started a new series, which will continue throughout season five, called Cultural Staples. The idea behind it is to zoom into the particular history of individual ingredients or crops that have had a deep and long-standing impact in Mexico's cuisine. But not only that, many of such ingredients traveled far and wide from the 16th century onwards and have gone on to find their very own adventures. The first installment of these cultural staples is about chiles, and the second is a two-part episode on the history of coco. And this is what Alex Hutchinson explained about Coco's international adventures once it reached the British Isles. Well, we do know a little bit about what chocolate would have tasted like when it first came to, to England. Um, although the first time it arrived in Britain, um, the British thought that the um, shipment they'd come across was um, sheep dung and burned a lot of it. So it, it, did have, it did have a bumpy ride on its way to, to England. But once it arrived in England, um, we know that it would have been um, quite bitter and quite astringent, much, much more so than modern chocolate, so the 21st century chocolate, because there have been some things in the last 150 years which have changed the taste of chocolate. So that first chocolate that the English had would have been quite fatty because they hadn't learned how to um, defat cocoa. Um, There would have been a strong acidic kind of um, vinegary tang to it, um, which comes out of the fermenting and, and, and the roasting process. And it would have been made on a small scale. So at first there were no big chocolate or cocoa factories. So in order to make chocolate, you'd have to go down to the docks and, uh, and buy a sack. It might have arrived um, at the port of Hull. Presumably you're a... Um, somebody running a cocoa house you've got your sack of cocoa and you need to roast it you're going to roast it on an open fire in um, maybe a, a copper pan you might have one guy roasting out one small pan of it and then it goes into a, a second pan once the beans have been roasted to be um, crushed up and um, uh, separate the shell from the bean and then it will go on to um, a matate which Is, is a Mexican invention. If the cocoa maker had an experience of the tradition of cocoa making, we have heard that some cocoa makers didn't realize they could use a matate and so they were using pestle and mortar. They would try to grind this, these cocoa beans up into a paste and then boil them in water or milk or maybe red wine to try to make a kind of a um, 
A fatty, lumpy gruel, as Deborah Cadbury described it. It doesn't sound all that appetising in the early days. It, the, because they had inherited chocolate in England, kind of third hand. It had, um, it had arrived in Europe through the Spanish um, and the Spanish court. And they had benefited from a little bit of the experience, the long, long, long experience of the native Mexican people who for thousands of years had been making drinks out of cocoa. And then by the time it arrived in England, we're kind of getting it third hand. So it took us a while to get the hang of how to make this a little bit more palatable. We'd add lots of things to it, but the big problem was that it was a fatty, lumpy gruel at first. The chocolate rose to ruling Britannia's own culinary waves is no small merit, one of course that only occurred thanks to the people behind the trade and the vision of the cocoa industrialists. When we think about the foods that defined us as nations, I am sure we can all come up with a few examples of this. Without a doubt, we can say that one of the most precious Mexican ingredients is corn, as you might have guessed. And tortillas are the most popular, versatile and loved of all corn-based foods. But ironically, or rather tragically, many people, Mexicans included, are unaware about the ongoing tortilla crisis that not only has jeopardized Mexico's own tortilla production, but also is reflected in the international tortilla market. This is what Rafael Mier explained about this. Ahorita es un logro muy importante para el maíz, la aprobación de la ley para el fomento de maíz nativo. We have recently achieved a huge milestone for Mexican corn, which is a newly approved law to protect and incentivate the cultivation of native varieties of corn. That this law was passed is really the result of joint efforts from Congress members, nonprofits, experts, and the general public who also shared their concern about the indiscriminate use of GMO seeds. Hemos estado trabajando más en la parte de la norma de la tortilla. Es una norma la cual regula cómo se elaboran las tortillas en nuestro país. On the other hand, Fundación Tortilla has been deeply involved with the initiative to regulate the production of tortillas that goes from health and safety regulations to the full disclosure and restriction of the use of chemical substances that go into these tortillas. Really is aimed to not only help consumers to make better choices, but also to distinguish qualities, types, and nutritional value of tortillas. Many are the challenges that Mexican food has encountered during its propagation in the world, often tainted by prejudices and cultural biases that distort people's perceptions about it. It is often portrayed as unhealthy, unrefined, and cheap. So changing that has been a very deliberate and elaborate process. Not only to reframe its cultural value, Edi Sandoval has done his part in a way that resonates across generations. I always wanted to make sure the ingredients were clean. We wanted to get it tested. I did a lot of research and I found out that brown rice is actually one of the most easily digestible foods out there. So that's why we started using brown rice protein powder. Cinnamon, I mean, is a very traditional spice that has to go with pinole and almost every pinole. And also the runners love it because cinnamon is an anti-inflammatory ingredient. So it helps them with that. And cane sugar, we just wanted to find a sweetener that was, you know, just added some flavor and make it healthy. And I know a lot of people are against sugar, but we just wanted to add organic cane sugar because at the same time, 
we want to promote health. And as you know, Rocio, with the Mexican population, diabetes is, affects so many people because we put so much processed sugar and processed stuff in food now that it's affecting even kids. I mean, Mexico has the number one child obesity. We wanted to make traditional foods, but in a healthier alternative. So we always tell people, look, our atole mix, I understand it's not as sweet. Like you go grab a box of chocolate abuelita because chocolate abuelita has 45 grams of sugar per serving. Our atole mix only has seven grams of sugar. So try to just get the best nutrition possible from our ingredients to the end customer. Food, we often find, is a perfect conduit for sharing symbols, representations, and aspects of a culture. That's what food studies tells us. But how exactly does that operate on a practical level? And when we reinterpret foods and repack them in a different way, what can we learn from the reactions of the people who consume it? Well, here is Karina again, sharing the reactions and feedback for her cupcake creations that have flavors such as mole, salsa verde, tamales, churros, and corn on the cob. They're seeing something they're familiar with, which is a cupcake, but now it has these flavors that they grew up with that are somehow still in their family. They have memories, connections mm. to. It's exciting for them is it's mind blowing. It has a what? It's made with what? Oh my God, my grandma makes that, you know? And the older generations are curious. I think they find it a little amusing. Mm. Look what this girl did, you know? <laughs> uh, isn't this funny? Oh my gosh, and it tastes the way it's called and it really has <laughs> this in there. In general, that has mm -hmm. been the reactions. It's either one of excitement or curiosity. And then in general, mm -hmm. no matter the age, no matter the background, is tamal con mole. What? <laughs> yeah, that is the cupcake uh -huh, uh -huh. that everyone is surprised. Uh, a lot of people are mm -hmm. curious and they, they understand, well, yes, mole has mm -hmm. chocolate and some, some people make it sweeter and some people make it spicier. <laughs> We do get a lot of people who come by and they say I don't like mole or they mm -hmm. say oh no not that one and then the, the people they are with buy the mole cupcake and they try it mm -hmm. and then right. they're like oh my god it's so good it's my favorite one now. It is often the case that we feel unprepared to take upon new challenges and doubt our own abilities or capacity to scale up our skills. But throughout the many interviews I've presented to you, I have found that, for many, the strength to overcome fears has come from aiming to contribute to a higher purpose, whether it is social change, building ethical businesses, challenge ideas, or being the conduit to amplify a message we believe in. Here's what Alex Hutchinson shared when she reflected on her books Quality Street Girls, And the mothers of Quality Street. Half of the enjoyment is in the, the, the chocolates and the toffees themselves, but the other half of the enjoyment is in the rituals that we've built up uh, around the product. And we've got very, very strong feelings about it. And it, at Christmas time, if you don't have a tin of Quality Street, then it can cause a row. And each different family feels so strongly about when it is appropriate and when it is definitely not appropriate to open the tin of Quality Street. I love the strong feelings about it. And so when I was approached to, to write about it, I had to think very carefully about how I would turn it into a story. For those people outside the UK who are perhaps not familiar with our, um, we have a, a religion of chocolate, but we have a kind of a, um, a small cult devoted to Quality Street. Quality Street was created by a toffee maker in, in 1936. He wanted to create 
sort of an affordable alternative to boxes of chocolates. And he decided that because he loved the plays of J.M. Barry, that's the same guy who wrote Peter Pan, he decided that he would use the name of one of J.M. Barry's other plays, Quality Street, and he'd take the characters from the play and put them on the on the tin and on the packaging and, and scenes from the play on the packaging. And I don't think he ever thought that it would become a national obsession. Nestle had bought up Roundtree Macintosh in 1988 and they've owned uh, Quality Street for a long time. HarperCollins asked if they could commission uh, a novel with Quality Street as its theme. They thought it might sell well at Christmas time as a, a Christmas gift for grandmas. And But I knew straight away what they ought to be doing. I said to them, look, you need to hire me. I'm desperate to write this book for you. And after a little bit of back and forth, they said, oh, okay, okay. I thought about Quality Street and how it was created in this decade of great innovation for chocolate. It was this golden age for confectionery. But it was also a decade when the world changed, during which fascism was on the rise all over the world. And it was the run-up to the, the Second World War. And Quality Street was being made in Halifax in West Yorkshire, but it was being made in 1936 by exploring young women. They didn't have equality with the, the male counterparts in the factories. And that was the, the story I wanted to tell. I didn't just want to talk about the chocolates. I wanted to talk about what it was like to absolutely love making those chocolates and to love love your job, but to be heartbroken that you didn't have equality with your, your male counterparts and what it was like to feel the need to fight for those equal rights. Because I talked to lots of the women who were working there and they all said that they loved it, that it was the best time of their life. But it was such a difficult and uphill struggle to try to work as a woman in a factory where you were kind of expected to leave the moment you got married. For a lot of women meant that if their boyfriend proposed marriage to them, if they wanted to keep working, they had to say no. You have to choose. Are you going to marry the guy you love or are you going to keep doing the job that you love? That's a, a horrible decision to have to make. But in the background, there's this there are the strong feelings that are created by this famous chocolate brand and the strong feelings in the factory that's making them. So it's serious stuff. But I wanted the stories to also be like Quality Street, the chocolate itself. I wanted them to be bright and colourful and exciting and kind of easy to gobble up in an afternoon if you're not careful. So the books are kind of a guilty pleasure like the chocolates. They're great fun to write. I'm thoroughly enjoying them and it does mean that as somebody who wants to be a cocoa educator, a chocolate educator and teach people about chocolate and how chocolate is made and the stories around the manufacture of chocolate, I can take people behind the scenes in a way that I can't do anywhere else. And so I absolutely love it. There is a universal truth in ancient wisdom. The Cherokee birth blessing comes to mind. May you live long enough to know why you were born. It is indeed curious how we often circle back to our core passion or our own history to reinvent ourselves. Here it is Rafael Mier reflecting on his own path. Digo, una parte es mi parte profesional y otra parte es mi vida personal, ¿no? Yo desde muy niño siempre tuve una gran afición al campo. Entonces yo desde muy pequeño pues sembraba from his early childhood, Rafael had the chance to learn to farm and he was very much used to planting vegetables because all of them come from rural areas, from generations back growing up, knowing and loving farming. 
So when Rafael went to college and did his undergrad and then postgraduate studies in business and administrations while working with governments and in the private sector as advisor and consultant in public policy, he really never gave up his involvement with organic farming. So one day he realized that corn was the key to start a movement to rethink our food traditions. So he came up with the idea of creating a simple Facebook page about traditional corn tortillas and everything blew up from there. Rafael has always been interested in centering the attention on the people who carry on farming and practice these culinary traditions because for him they are the key to keep all this food system alive. He tenido la oportunidad de conocer a muchas personas, nos han apoyado muchas personas también, ¿no? For him this path has been deeply interesting and rewarding and corn has revealed itself as a very complex subject with many areas to explore, learn and grow, but thanks to this he's been able to work and know many people from all avenues of life and together they continue promoting and championing Mexican corn. Every project reveals different challenges, which of course come with many lessons. Thinking in hindsight, the process of filming an independent production, which was also her very first documentary, Elizabeth Caro shared this about the making of Nothing Fancy. Did I know what I was getting myself into at the beginning? Absolutely not. I had no idea. I mean, in the beginning, I just wanted to interview Diana. I just wanted her to be part of this broader project that I had just come up with. My own desires for it were still extremely vague, but it all just sort of happened like lightning. It was like, oh, I want to do this. Oh, Diana Kennedy. Oh, wouldn't I love to meet her? Oh, she's going to be here tomorrow. Oh, wow. Okay. So I didn't really have time to flesh out this big treatment of what I wanted the film to be. It was just sort of like once I started learning more about her, I was like, oh, my God, we need to film this woman right now. Time is running out. She's 91. Who knows how long we have with her? So we need to do everything in our power just to get there and get the camera rolling. I think at least for a lot of the films that I've seen, documentaries that I love, like character studies, the really intimate ones that obviously take a lot of time. Um I would never do another project the same way. There's just no way that that would ever happen. A lot of the aspects of doing this project this way was based on scarcity of funding and having, you know, no prior experience. So for me, that was a detriment. I didn't want to take my time. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to take six years. You know, I obviously I wouldn't take it back. I'm unbelievably grateful for this experience because it gave me the tools that I need to go and do another project more effectively and efficiently and but it's more like now having you know experience where i can prove that i'm capable of doing something like this to people who would give me another another opportunity um and being more confident and just saying you know this is what i want to do and this is what i need and can you help me do it the path of the solo entrepreneur is seldom one where overnight success follows a great idea But in this day and age, when younger generations have a hyper-exposure and, I want to say, in many cases, extra sensibility to our current social challenges, the vulnerability of our food systems and the role of large corporations and governments in diminishing our ability to have a fair and affordable access to healthy foods and choices that are actually beneficial to us, well, This is what Eddie Sandoval reflected on his experience building Pinole Blue while trying to balance the production of a high-quality heritage product and giving back to the people that inspired his business. 
we've been noticing how these huge food companies are just making all this money and they're not even give us a, giving us a quality product. So, and people are noticing all the diseases and stuff that are happening. I mean, you hear stories about Maseca, the corn that they use, and then you hear big corporations, even like Monsanto here in the United States, that's one of the biggest genetic modified corn and seed uh, seed business, but specifically corn. And it's causing a bunch of illness and sickness. I mean, this corn is so bad that we can only feed animals with it. And even that is causing diseases to us. So yeah, I think that's kind of where it all started. I want the audience to know about one of your partners, uh, who is uh, ultra marathon champion Lorena Ramirez. Yeah. Lorena Ramirez is Tarumana, who is actually from near Huachochi, Chihuahua. And my family is from Bayesa, which is the municipality right next to Huachochi. She started growing a lot of fame because her brother and her dad were really good runners. They had won a couple of the ultra marathoners in Chihuahua, and she started competing even in the local races. But where she really gained spotlight is when she won one of the marathons or ultra marathons in Mexico City. And this put a huge spotlight. She doesn't even speak Spanish. And second of all, she runs in a dress with sandals and mostly just drinks water or pinole. She doesn't have headphones. She doesn't even have tennis shoes, nothing. She has won all over the world. She's gone to Canada. She's gone to Japan, in the mountains, in Spain. And she took third place out of her division. So this is just phenomenal. And well, I guess giving a little background is my family being from the same area. My dad knows almost the full Tarumara language. My dad even wore sandals like that. Growing up, my dad always told me about them. My dad would even tell me some words like, Cuida tu is hi, how are you? Tortilla remeque. It was just very unique in how the running abilities in. They have this tradition where they run with a wooden ball, almost like the one the Aztecs would play with. But for them, it's a very spiritual thing. And it's very big right before they actually plant the new corn harvest. Uh, they do a big one and then they do another one again after the harvest. Pinole is known for what they're drinking. I mean, you go to these races and you see a lot of the Elder ladies, they have little bags of pinole and just grab some scoop of pinole with some water and they go and they just keep running. So my connection with Lorena is because my family were so close to the same area where she's from. I got in contact with some people that worked at the some of the, as like the event coordinator for the county. And she told me there's going to be a big race uh, in Huachochi and Lorena Ramirez is going to come. And this is the first time we're actually going to kind of open it to the public where everyone can because because normally it's very secluded. It's only the Tarumanas that go and we got invited. And it was incredible because this race is going on. We took a drone with my business partner. We took drone shots and they're running with the ball. I think Lorena right now is starting a huge movement. And now on Netflix, there's even a documentary about her. It's called Lorena, the Ultra Foot Woman. I've actually sponsored Lorena, not particularly just for races. We just try to send money whenever she's going to other events. Her brother, her dad, and her were trying to get a U.S. visa to start competing here. And I helped with get some race coordinators. And I even got some immigration lawyers to help out. And we helped visa sponsor. So we plan to bring her to the U.S. now to start competing. The opportunities that food provides us with as an entry point for deeper discussions and to awaken people's curiosity to reflect on the many ways food can bring us together is something at the core of Karina's work and behind a seemingly innocent cupcake, there is a conversation opener. I think the first, honestly, was realizing the kind of impact that what I do makes on people. And realizing that 
something's happening here. Realizing that what I do has an impact on others. I always keep this in mind. I've heard another of my peers say this. The way people view a food is the way they view that culture. And so it has this educational component to connect cultures, to connect people to the food of other cultures and such. They're tiny pieces of a work of art. But yeah, it's I probably those two things that I just mentioned have been the biggest, the emotional connection. And then other people who are in the beginning stages of my own situation and the people who look up to what I'm doing and ask me and they look for advice for me, which anytime I can, I, I would uh, offer the knowledge that I know and all the things that I've been to because I know I've been in their shoes and I know what they're going through. I studied art. That's always Mm -hmm. in the back of my mind. And going back to food always creates this opportunity for conversation. It's been in my mind for a couple of years. I keep thinking in the times that we live in right now, we're targeted and we're pushed to separate instead of unite. I want to do something to give back to provide information, to open up dialogue and discussions, to bring us together, to show everyone over dessert how we're more alike than we are different. I think it is fair to assume that the fact that you have chosen to listen to this podcast speaks about your curiosity and interest about Mexico's food, its culture and traditions. And I'm pretty sure that you and I also share many other interests about culinary traditions in general. Cooks, Scholars and researchers are often questioned about the reason why they document with such dedication the dishes and practices that have either disappeared or will change in the future. And I myself have had that question put before me. And the answer, I think, lays in the fact that in order to appreciate a cuisine, we must study to be able to understand it. I don't think this is an exercise to prevent the change or innovation or evolution of traditions, but rather to help build a knowledge vault that we can all access, enjoy, and make it our own. So very ad hoc, the last of today's sound bites. It is an extract from episode 58, and here it is Diana Kennedy talking about one of her books. Um, during my young years, uh, it was World War II on, and I was busy in the timber core cutting trees down. Now, ever since then, of course, I've been planting trees, and hundreds and hundreds of trees, and did a pre-planting program in the village. And I was the gringa who was going to live there, and they thought, of course, with a swimming pool and all that sort of thing. Little did they know. My latest, I want to say, my latest book uh, was on Oaxaca. It took 14 years because it was going up into the mountains uh, season after season, year after year, with my sleeping bag and my truck and um, documenting, uh, especially the use of the wild herbs and the gathered things with which people were surviving. And because I think it's very important to give these totally unknown cooks the great privilege of having their work documented. And with that, we bring to a close 
the best beats of 2020. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was written and produced with much love by me, Rocío Carvajal. Independent creators like myself bring diversity, empowerment, and opportunities to discover, enjoy, and learn. This podcast is available for free for anyone to listen and enjoy wherever you are in the world. Every time you recommend a show to a friend, make a donation via buymeacoffee.com or purchase one of my ebooks, you help me continue this project. Please remember that you can always reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and you can drop me a line to hello at pasachipotle.com. But if you can't wait to listen amazing content, guess what? I also produce Hungry Books Podcast, a show dedicated to exploring the best books ever written on the subject of food. And knowing you have a curious foodie mind, I think you will enjoy it. You can look it up wherever you are listening to this podcast or scroll down on this episode's notes to find the link. Well, that's it for today, my friends. See you in season five.